Matthew right now. If you're newer to the scriptures, uh, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. There are four gospel accounts in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that all uh, complement each other and together tell us the story of Jesus, which is the climax of the whole of the scriptures. And, and we're right now in the middle of Matthew, still before the cross and the empty tomb when he dies for our sins, overwhelms death, defeats it for us, which is the climax of all the Bible, and also this uh, one book as well, Matthew. We're going to get there. We'll be there this fall, actually. So it's going to, I think when all is said and done, uh, be about a two-year series for us. So longest of the four Gospels, it's been great. We are just crossing the, the halfway point here, too. And also, a bit of a hinge point. So if you are, haven't been here for a while, understand that uh, there's been a shift. Uh, it's one story. The Bible's one story. Matthew's one segment of that story. But a shift uh, topically or um, thematically in the book in how explicit Jesus has gotten with who he is and with his mission. And he's been demonstrating that throughout the whole book. And we've gotten hints from things like when the angels pronounce his birth, and say that his name will be Jesus because he will forgive people their sins, that's a hint, and actually more than a hint. It's very clear. This is why he's going to come into the world, to forgive sins. And uh, the virgin birth as well, being born, conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, born of a virgin, that tells us he's more than just a man. Uh, he's the God-man. So there's tons of hints, of course, along the way, and, and we know the end of the story. We know that he's going to the cross. He's going to die for our sins there and absorb the wrath of God in our place, pay our debts. We'll talk about that today that debt, pain, love of Christ. It's going to be a big theme in Matthew 17. Uh, in all of that, the empty tomb, three days later, he rises again. So we know, it's kind of like if you know the Bible, we're watching the movie a second time or a hundredth time. We know the end, but it's great to watch the movie again because we love the story. Uh, but if you don't know that, if you were just exposed to Matthew for the first time and hadn't read anything else, you're sort of in the narrative with the original audience, there would be a shift with how explicit Jesus was getting in Matthew 16 and 17 about his nature and what he, what he came to do. So he's been doing that, and not with the crowds and with everybody. He's in part seeking to not be actually fully disclosing of his identity to the crowds in some capacities, but he's getting very, there's reasons for that, but falling outside the scope of today, so I'm not going to go there, but we did that prior, and we'll do that again before the series is over. But with his friends, with his disciples, with his followers, uh, he is uh, getting very clear on his mission. And so we're subtitling this series, the, 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 the middle segment of the book, really, uh, declaring and demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, that, that is our interpretational paradigm, especially for these middle chapters of the book. You could say, though, for all, all of the book, and it's a great way to approach uh, the rest of the scriptures as well. God speaks very clearly to us in many ways, many in various ways, and he demonstrates those truths physically as well. This is how God likes to move and chooses to move. We have to understand that if we're going to understand the Bible. This is just the, the God he is. He works through symbols and types and pictures and shadows and also realities, time and time and time again. And we're seeing that play out here in Matthew as well. Very clear with his words and also clear, but in a, in a secondary kind of way with his actions on what, who he is, what he's all about, what his mission is, and uh, who we, and our role essentially in, uh, in the storyline, in the role that we play as beneficiaries of the salvation. So, Let's read on Matthew 17. We're going to read this in two segments today. Matthew 17, 22 to 27 is today's passage. We'll start with the first couple of verses. But uh, today's uh, big idea is then God lowered, uh, lowered himself. Not a new idea by any means in Matthew, but uh, it really starts to steamroll ahead here uh, in Matthew 17 as we, as we start to really make a beeline to the cross. So Matthew 17, 22 to 23. As they were gathering in Galilee... 
Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So the them here, to be clear, is Jesus' 12 disciples, his friends, is the, the people he's closest with, people he called to himself, uh, to basically, in a lot of ways, be an extension of himself in the world. Not, not in the fullest extent of, the, of that phrase or word until after the cross, but in the church, we are that now as well, and how we preach the word and embody Christ as the body of Christ in the world. But in the earlier parts of the narrative here, um, he does send them out, but it's really these 12 he's chosen to be this initial, not really the church yet, because the church is really born through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but those early, the early picture of a new people. Uh, there are 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, so it's no coincidence he picks 12 men uh, to basically be a to convey the idea that he's, he's making a new Israel people. Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew will constitute this. He's going to recreate the world and gather a new people to himself around his death and resurrection. So that's basically what's going on here in context when it says that Jesus said uh, to them. So have that in mind uh, as well. Uh, we've already seen, though, Jesus speak in these terms. Uh, back in chapter 16, he's done this once before. Basically said the exact same thing. And before he does die on the cross for our sins, before he does rise again and resurrect himself from the dead, Three days after that, he'll speak in these terms two more times. So there's four of these uh, disclosing patterns or predictive patterns of what's going to happen on the cross, uh, not too far from this. And this is the second of the four. So I'll do it two more times here. We'll talk about those uh, in future weeks. But a couple of things here on this uh, before we move on to the rest of the passage we'll spend more of our time on. Note how just in control it makes Jesus appear. It's one of those things that are easily readoverable, but... Jesus has tons of control here, right? He's obviously, his divine side is being shown in the one hand because he's predicting the future. And actually, quite in specific terms, too. He gets pretty specific what's going to happen. He talks about crucifixion a little bit later as well, but talks about Gentiles being the ones who are going to do this. And talks about three days. It's a very specific number. Three days later, he will rise from the dead. That in and of itself being an expression of divinity, too. But what I really like about this is he immediately diffuses the idea with this statement that the cross was a surprise, or that the cross was not in his plans, or an afterthought. He does not leave it to us, does not leave it open to us to conclude that the cross was a plan B. You can't read this statement and think the cross was a surprise, wasn't in the plan of God, it's kind of a plan B thing, and not really the gist of his ministry. You just can't do it. So it I love that the Bible does that, that Jesus does that. He does not leave it open to us, to an end, if we're really faithful readers of the Bible, to conclude that the cross is not the climax. The cross is not the main thing. The empty tomb is not the essence of his mission. We can't do it. So I love that he, he just inserts these things like this uh, for us to rest on and have lots of, like we said before, declarative clarity in. We know what his mission is. We know what he came to do. And... Um, and we can trust and believe in that. So the second thing is, it's also, I think, an example. If you've been here for a couple of weeks, too, this will be a, a repeated theme this morning, but great example of the tension-filled definition of what it means for Jesus to be the king and the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the Christ. What does it mean that he's the Christ? And he's been talking in these terms about that. So when Peter, back in chapter 16, Peter's one of Jesus' disciples, and that's when Jesus dropped the question to him and says, who do people say that I am? And he said, basically a prophet. But who do you say that I am? Speaking to all the disciples, but Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ. You're the God-man. You're more than a prophet. You're more than a teacher. You're more than just a good individual who's preparing the way for the Christ. That's what the prophets did in the Old Testament. They were preparers of the way. 
Peter's confession is basically saying you are the way. You are the one. You are the... All of God's promises before this are finding their yes and their goal in in you. And Peter there is not connecting by any means all the dots when he says that, but the confession he's giving is, is catering to that. And it's obviously the right answer over and against what the people are saying because when Jesus says, but what are you saying? He's basically saying that's not correct. It's not, not correct to just say I'm a prophet, i.e. just an individual, just a good guy who's part of the plan, but rather to say that Jesus is the plan. He is the, uh, the plan of God, the ultimate fulfillment of his promises. So going back into, into that context, spilling over into chapter 17 and also into today's passage, there's been this tension-filled definition of what that means. This is when Jesus speaks up and says, right after Peter gets that answer, I need to die. I must suffer. I must suffer many things at the hands of sinful men and be killed, and then after that, raised on the third day. So we've been looking at this definition play out, explicit and implicit terms, really throughout the series, but especially in a heightened sense for the past uh, couple of weeks, and this just plays into it. But that definition really can be boiled down into just that. Suffering and glory. Not just one or the other, not just glory first, but suffering first, then spilling over into glory. If you look back, just again, just chapter 16 alone, that's basically what we're seeing. Him saying and demonstrating that God is going to lower himself and is lowering himself by becoming human in the first place. But then not just that, but becoming, as Philippians 2 says, obedient to death, even death on a cross. Dying, as, even though he's not a criminal, dying like he is a criminal, among criminals. The most excruciating of deaths, the most shameful of deaths reserved for the worst of people was crucifixion. And that's the type of death Jesus went to. So basically what's being said, but again, also demonstrated, we'll see this play out a little bit later today as well, is the divine being lowered. God lowers himself to the point of death, empties himself to the point of death to destroy sin. Not just doing it randomly because he's bored, but because he loves us, loves us. And he wants to give give his father glory as well. So there's this plan, God, this divine plan, and Jesus is really intent on fulfilling that plan. There's this missional, intentional idea, but also it's out of love. Scriptures are very, very clear. It is love that drove Christ uh, to the cross. So let's see, let's see how this plays out then here uh, in the rest of Matthew 17. I actually did have a chart here too. I forgot to mention that, so a few chart people. Uh, on the left side, uh, suffering, uh, I'm a chart guy, so you guys probably know that by now. <laughs> um, Jesus has been saying you know, things like, I'm about to be delivered in the hands of sinful men. Suffer many things. They will kill him. But on the glory side of things, he's used the phrase son of man, which is a, a messianic, picture of God, essentially, in Daniel 7 in the Old Testament, it was one of God's promises to his people that one like a son of man will come into the world, put an end to all earthly kingdoms, and set up his own. But it'll be a much greater one. And so basically, it was the hope of the Israelites and and the world watching that this one would in fact come into the world to put an end to our ultimate enemy, which is sin. But the, the vision, the picture that Daniel gets is one of unapproachable light. It's glorious. It's a divine image proceeding from this, this uh, phrase for God that Daniel uses a couple of times, the ancient of days. So God is there seated on his throne and proceeding from the ancient of days is one like a son of man, speaking of Christ ahead of time. And so the son of man is actually a very divine image and a glory-ridden a glory ridden image. Transfiguration, a couple weeks ago we looked at that as well. Uh, Jesus transfigures himself in a son of man kind of way with Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples watching 
That was uh, the topic for a couple of weeks ago in the earlier parts of chapter 17. But then just a statement of raised on the third day as well. Do you guys see how both are happening here? Suffering and this is the nature of Messiahship and the mission of God, suffering then leading into glory as well. One of the points here, though, and the right column helps us see this, is it's God who is suffering. It's the glorious divine God who's lowering himself to the left column. It's not just a guy. That's what this, the duality here screams to us. It's not random. It's divinely planned. And it's God who lowers himself, not an individual who does, just a man who does, a human who does. It is, in fact, God lowering himself uh, to, to death. So as I say here, the kingdom of God is established through the suffering of God. There is no other way. There's no other kingdom that benefits us. There's no other thing that gathers us as sinful people. This, this is what had to happen to remove sin, to bridge that, to fix that chasm that was set up between us and God when everything fell and was corrupted back in the garden in Genesis 3 and all of us sharing in that. Uh, that's, that's the problem. That's the cancer. Christ is the, God's suffering on a cross in our place as a substitute paying our debt of sin is, in fact, uh, the remedy. And that's what we see here in the first two verses, just declared. All right, let's move on to the rest of the passage, uh, verses 24 to 27. And uh, we'll see how this, the rest of this plays out in a demonstrated manner. So this is the, the, the declared side of it. And now we're going to see this demonstrated piece to it as well with what Jesus does right after this. Remember, Jesus is very intentional. Uh, when you read your scriptures, understand that, that sometimes when you read a passage, look what comes right before it. What type of literary device is used? What happens right before that feeds into what comes after? Or what comes after this passage? We'll talk about that next week that uh, even gives more light to it. So have intentionality in mind uh, when you read it. Verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. All right, pretty much preaches itself, right? Let's just close it up and say amen. Not really. Um, a little bit of background here. What's going on in the the first century, there was a tax that everyone paid. Some were exempt from this, but it was more the exception than the rule. Uh, Basically, everyone paid a temple tax, so it was upkeep of the temple. It was paid annually, so the two drachma tax is referring to that. It was a temple tax to help upkeep the building, and uh, I believe in some sense pay priests as well, but we're cloudy on that historically. But basically, upkeep the temple. Uh, Collectors then come and, and Matthew 17 here, for the tax, and ask the disciples if Jesus pays the tax. They're just asking. Peter says, yes, he does. But we see afterwards, he apparently spoke too soon. I mean, Jesus says via question to Peter that the king's sons, uh, this is more of a parabolic response to what just happened, king's sons don't pay taxes to their father, right? They're exempt from paying taxes to the king. It's only for outsiders that pay the taxes. In the same way, Jesus, as the son of God, who lives, at least symbolically, in the temple, and that's the house, Jesus is exempt from paying that tax, right? Because he's the son of God. He's not, not an outsider. He's the son of God. So he's free. The sons are free, he says. 
But nevertheless, in order not to give offense, and we'll explain that phrase later, he ends up paying the tax for himself and for Peter. But see the initial thing here going on is he's saying, Peter spoke too soon. Actually, I am going to pay, I'm going to pay the tax, and he does, but I don't have to. It's really important to understand that. I don't have to do it. I'm, a, I'm the son of God, and my father resides in the temple, and so this, this temple tax I am exempt from. I don't have to pay it. All right, so the rest of our time here then are going to be noting a few huge, wonderful theological things that we learned from this about Christ and about the nature of the gospel and ourself and that. And also I'll end with a bit of a response, a way that we can pattern this in the context of our Christian community and, uh, and our lives. So that's going to be the rest of our time. But ask yourself, where's the gospel in this passage? Like we always should ask that, where's the gospel here? And maybe more particularly, how is Jesus continuing to declare and especially here demonstrate the gospel of the kingdom? Remember, have that in mind. Jesus is at pains not just to say things, but to demonstrate things about the nature of the cross and the empty tomb, which is coming later, the nature of grace and salvation. So I have two big things. The first is, like I talked about before in a declarative manner, but now we'll do it in a demonstrated manner, the lowering of Jesus Christ. So to pull from Jesus' own language used here when he says, others, or essentially outsiders, pay the tax but not the sons, what he's saying here by paying the taxes, he's literally associating with outsiders, non-sons, by paying the tax. He's acting like an other, right? He doesn't have to pay this, but he's acting like he's almost not a son or not free. He's almost becoming enslaved, in a sense, to paying this tax. He's associating with outsiders who are not where God is, people like us. Though he's free. Hebrews 13, 11 to 12 hits on this too when talking about the sacrifice of Christ and where he suffered. Look at this. He says, or Hebrews says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Speaking of the Old Testament now and where parts of the animals were cleaned up and burned after they were, after they were sacrificed. So Jesus also suffered outside the gates in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So he's making a big deal of the, the location of Jesus' sufferings, being outside the gate. He became like one of us, walked among us as one of us, and died outside, outside the city, outside the temple, the essence of God's presence. He not just became one of us, but the location here is theologically huge to latch onto and to say, outside the gate, as an outsider, like an other, he came to die as one of us in our place. It's huge which then really fits in nicely with what we know about his nature as the son of God and the son of man. The highest becoming low and walking among the lowly and doing what he didn't have to do but still wanted to do. That is huge. If you get anything out of this second section, write that down or highlight that section in your, in your passage. Jesus did not have to do this, but he, but he did it. Didn't have to, in the same way, just like he didn't have to pay the tax here, he didn't have to die for us either. So like he didn't have to pay the tax, but he did it out of, con- out of concern here, not to give offense. We'll explain that, passage, or that, that segment a little bit later. He did not have to die for us. Again, it's clearly then not out of obligation or law, right? We talk, look back at the segment here. It's not out of obligation. There's no law above Jesus that says you have to pay this tax. It's because he just does. He wants to. If we fast forward ahead to the cross to see really where this is pointing, 
it takes on a heightened level of it. Similar there. The work of Jesus for us on the cross is clearly not prompted out of obligation or law. Yes, there's a strong element of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament, fulfilling the law by dying for our sins. That's part of when he says, I must die for sins and all that. But again, this is part of God's plan. When it was put in motion, it was part of a desire to do this, not a requirement. There was no law above God saying you have to die for people. There's beauty in that. Rest in that. Understand that. When you take, in other words, when you take law and obligation out of something, what do you have remaining? Choice. Love. Right? Especially when we look at the cross. When you take law and obligation out of the equation, all that's left is love. That's what he did. So we don't have this sense that Jesus is saying, oh, that's right, I forgot I've got to die for these people and pay this stupid penalty. He's like looking for change in his pockets. Like that's not the picture of Jesus you get, right? You get a picture of a resolved Savior, set out a lover of our souls who did not have to do it, but he did it. The only explanation is love. That's beautiful, and it's a whisper of it here that we get in this passage, that Jesus goes out of his way, not just to, as it's been said before by many, you are not tolerated by God. You are loved by him. Do you see the difference? Do you believe the difference? You're loved by him, not just tolerated as a sinner. You are loved as a sinner. And you are died for. You have been, he has sacrificed his own life. God has done this for you. And love is, is sort of the son of that solar system. Everything's revolving around that. The glorious love of your Savior. Like so many people live as though they're just tolerated by God and not loved deeply by him. Uh, that's the essence of their spiritual. God is just thinking, well, I, I've got to do this. It's, it's a law above me. I have to. It's not personal. It's more, it's more of a wide net, an impersonal net of sort of love because he just had to do it. God just has to do these kind of things. But no, it's very, very personal, this love is. And it's a very personal love at that. So understand it, rest in it. And, and when you read this story now and today and in the future, understand that when you take obligation and law out of this, like you see it whispered here in the pain of the tax, look ahead to the cross and say it's the same there. It's the same there. It's a whisper of it here. God loves me. He loves me. He's not obligated to love and if something is telling him to do it, he actually does. God actually loves me. Lord, to be like me, to die in my place, to love me by taking my sins away. Glory to God. So that's the first piece here. Uh, the second piece uh, spills into this, and that is the debt-paying grace of Christ. Verse 27 just says clearly, take that shekel, Jesus says to Peter, and give it to them for me, but this is key, also for yourself. So really what we're seeing here is another whisper, another glimpse of how the lowering of Christ was not just a lowering, but a lowering that did something. It accomplished something, right? Debt payment. So what, it's literally what Jesus is doing here is paying a debt for Peter, right? Literally. Fast forward to the cross. This is exactly what Jesus does later, but in a heightened level. So like Jesus pays Peter's tax here, he will later pay for his sins on the cross, which is a much bigger debt, and the sins of the world, it's a debt that's on the shoulders of the people before the king. So we're, again, we're getting whispers of that here in the parable that Jesus inserts here with the king's son tax idea. It's the same thing, but on a much more heightened level. You have debt before God. So a lot of you have a lot of physical debt, but you have a much bigger spiritual debt before God that the Bible 
teaches us that we have to understand. That's the bad news. That is, the good news eradicates. And if you're in Christ, you don't have that debt anymore. But I think it's still good to remember that in our old selves, we have heaps and mountains of debt. There's a parable, actually, we'll look at this in a couple weeks from now in Matthew 18, which talks about forgiveness. I won't give it away, but, um, that, that, but in light of that, he talks about how this one individual has, uh, I think it's 10,000 talents. Uh, I could be getting that number wrong, but regardless, it's basically uh, lifetimes of salary. And so it's unpayable. And the point there is to, to look at that number and say, and he's forgiven by this king. And so in that parable, the point is to say, it's not, it's, you can't pay it back. It, it's, it's a mountain of debt that's been incurred before God spiritually. And, and when we rebelled against him and sinned, and we still do that, when we breathe in that and just live and have our being in sin, we're constantly, constantly, constantly adding to it. One of the images for what happened on the cross biblically is debt payments. It's all over the scriptures, and here, again, we get a glimpse and a whisper of this ahead of time. So we've got to pay careful attention to passages here because it tells us in a demonstrated manner what happens on the cross. Some of you might be here and you're wondering that. You've never been clear on that in your life. You know the cross happened, but you don't know why it happened or what actually transpired there. What transaction took place? Did it have to happen? Yes, it had to happen. Jesus says must. And he wanted it to happen out of love, like we talked about earlier. And yes, something happened there as well. A transaction took place. A debt was paid. Our debt was laid on him, and he took on pain and suffering and separation from God, our debt of sin on his own shoulders, and died as a substitute. A couple of places that, that uh, pick up on this theme, I'll um, read for context here, though there are many more, is uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, which says, you are not your own, speaking to the church. You were bought with a price. If you're a Christian, you were bought, you were purchased. God purchased you back from sin and death with his own blood. That, that was the payment. You were bought with that price. It cost God something super, super high, his own life. God suffered, brought his kingdom into the world that way, and in that way, paid a debt that was able to bring people back into his presence again. Colossians 2, And you who were dead in your sins and trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. By This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's what happened on the cross. We had debt. It was nailed to Jesus as a human who became a human being to advocate for us and die as one of us. It's part of what happened. There's more that happened there, but that's essentially what happened. Our debt was nailed to him. It was placed upon his shoulders. He, he absorbed it into himself, and he died as a substitute for us, paying out of love doing that for us. And completely by grace as well, too, right? Something God is clearly doing and we're not contributing to. And that's why I love this additional piece here of something, by the way, Jesus did not have to do it this way, but I think he chose it for a reason the whole, with the whole fish thing. <laughs> Jesus says, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm free as a son, but I'm going to pay the tax. So go and fish for a fish, get a, pull a fish out of the water, and inside the fish's mouth you'll find this a coin. Pay it to the collector for myself and, and for you. It's almost like bordering on ridiculous, right? Like why, did, why couldn't Jesus just, you know, find it on the ground or just make it appear out of thin air? Like he can do that, right? It's God. But he actually goes him and has him catch a fish and find it in its mouth. And I think the reason for that is to cater to this idea that God does everything. We don't do it. I mean, is, is this something, after all this transpires, 
is this something Peter could have taken credit for? Is this something Peter could have taken credit for? Did Peter say, or did Peter find this coin on his own? Did it say that Peter worked for the money, then paid the tax later on? No. Three times no, right? No, it says Jesus miraculously made the money appear basically out of nothing. So no boasting or credit could be taken by Peter or any of us. There's just absolutely no way Peter walks away from this thinking he had anything to do with it whatsoever, right? And Jesus is always intent on doing that because he wants to teach us God saves, we don't. God comes to us, we don't come to him. We don't find him, he finds us. We don't save ourselves, we don't work for salvation. We simply watch Jesus make it appear out of thin air. Again, there's a reason why Jesus does not say, go home and get your own money. Reach in your own pocket and pull out that coin. He doesn't say that, right? He says, go fish, pull a fish out of the water, and you'll find a coin in its mouth. So that absolutely no one, Peter himself and all of those watching, all of us throughout history watching this can say, God saves by grace, we do not. That's what this declares to us in a demonstrative manner, right? This is why God works this way. And by the way, if you're newer to the Bible, Look for these places in narrative in the Bible, especially Old Testament too, where God works in the generally miraculous, but sometimes ridiculous. Look for this theme of we're saved by grace, not by what we do, because it's almost always there. I always like to think of, um, if you guys are familiar with the story of um, Israel entering the promised land and, and, and walking around Jericho, the walls of Jericho, uh, for seven days in a repeated manner, blowing trumpets and screaming. And it says in that story that the people of Jericho laughed, and they, they thought it was, they were a little scared at first and thought it was ridic- ridiculous, but it is kind of silly, right? The why? Like, why seven days? You know, why, why the trumpets? Why the yelling? Why not two days? Why can't they at least touch the wall, but they were instructed not to? Part of the purpose is to say that no one doing that, no one watching, no one involved with the walking around the city could say, we made these walls fall down. Because on the seventh day, when they yelled and blew that final trumpet, the walls just crumbled, and they took the city and ultimately the promised land. No one can say they did it, right? You do not save yourselves. You do not pull a coin of salvation out of your pockets and pay God. God makes it appear out of nothing, out of a fish's mouth, randomly. He's the magician. He just makes it appear. He does that through his own death and resurrection. He's the Savior. We're the beneficiaries. Glory to God. All right. Third and final, then, uh, what I want to do for the rest of our time is look at this uh, statement of to not give offense. And this goes back to talking about, it's talking about love before. I think you get this, uh, the part of the rationale for Jesus uh, paying the taxes to not give offense. I think at the core of that, ultimately, the trajectory of that is love. Talked about that prior, but I do want to unpack that statement of to not give offense here, too, because the pattern of what Jesus does here for us, uh, you know, later in the New Testament, not only becomes the center of our faith objectively, we spent all morning talking about that already, but also a pattern that we follow in life and in ministry as well. So uh, in the Apostle Paul's ministry, for example, in the New Testament, it's a guy that wrote half the New Testament. Uh, he wrote 1 Corinthians as well, which I'll quote here in a second, but he uses the, I'm free to do this, but I'm laying that down so that I can more easily become the people I'm reaching and not put a stumbling block between them and Jesus' argument often. So basically, I'm free to do this, but for love's sake, I'm not going to. He uses that argument very frequently in his letters, especially in 1 Corinthians. Actually, 1 Corinthians 9 uh, says this as well. It's verses 22 to 23. 
I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might win some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul's basically doing here is he's resembling Jesus when he talks this way. He knows that God became like him. We saw that play out in today's passage too, right? Jesus became like a taxpayer. He became like an outsider. He died outside the camp. He became a human being in general. He walked among us. He took on our sin. God lowered himself. And in light of that greater theological gospel principle, Paul says, I want to become like those I'm trying to save, that I'm preaching to, that I'm living around. So in greater context here, if you want to read all this, read 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, those three chapters. It's just one, or, you know, we preached through it a few years ago, if that helps. It's on our website. Listen to that. Wonderfully applicable and super complex. Uh, Read it five times kind of thing, but it's great. Uh, But do that. But here, for today's purposes, understand here that Paul is just saying, like God became like me, I want to become like those. Though I'm free not to, uh, for love's sake and the gospel's sake, I'm going to become like people that uh, I'm called to reach. God's calling me to reach. So we resemble Christ that way. So again, for our purpose then too, we, can, we, we should live this way as well. Though we have freedoms as Christians, then for example, then to, to dress and eat and live and talk in certain ways, there are times to lay those things aside for the sake of others. So uh, one of the examples of this that um, I believe we use back in our series as well, a lot of people use, um, Paul uses a food example in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, and so it's helpful to talk about food, I think, sometimes as well. But does drinking alcohol cause your neighbor offense? And there's time to lay that down, even though you're free to drink it, to the glory of God. Uh, lay it down and don't do that to create some unnecessary stumbling block between people and Jesus. So becoming like them as a non-beer drinker or wine drinker, uh, at least for a time, to reach them with the gospel. Or with food as well. Uh, you know, I think in our neighborhood, uh, Letha and I talk a lot about this, um, that in our neighborhood, uh, eating, you know, gardening and eating organic foods is a religion. And so if that's a big deal for people um, and you're having over for dinner, uh, eat organic food, you know, uh, become like them. Even though you're free to eat McDonald's, the glory of God, um, eat organic food with them. Uh, and Aletha and I love, you know, we, we love gardening. We've bought into our local co-op here in Seward Co-op and love shopping there, and it's a big deal. But we also love having non-organic food sometimes as well. Um, but, you know, regardless of whether that, you know, gives some kind of offense to people on whatever level it is, uh, become like them, you know, for, uh, for a time. That's the idea. We're free. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Uh, but I think in a lot of ways, you know, for our culture, maybe especially here in the Twin Cities, you know, people operate underneath the idea that they probably wouldn't use these words, but you're kind of saved by how you eat. Uh, you're saved by eating organic foods. You're saved by recycling. You're a better citizen, but you, you, you contribute to the welfare of the earth. Uh, it's a salvation-type salvation language is used, you know, in it. And, and again, uh, it's, it's not the Christian way of thinking because the Bible says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of food. It's a matter of righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit from Romans uh, 14, I think that is. So, but, so these, these are things we have freedom in. Like Jesus says, I'm free. If you're a Christian, you are now adopted into God's family. You are a son like he is, and you have freedoms. You, you, are, you are renamed. You're a son. You're a daughter in Christ. You're in his house. And so you have these freedoms then not to effectively pay the tax. But like Jesus, for the sake of not offending, does, let your life do that. Let your life do that and flow into that. And just think about that. It's one of these places, too, as a preacher, I, I love this stuff, but 
It's really hard to mention one example without cheapening it because there's like a billion examples of how this could look in your life. So I almost hesitate to say anything, but I still want to say something today as one way this could look. But my big encouragement for you guys is to not, not, not revisit this, but talk, think about it today with your spouse if you're married, with your community group this week and think, what does this mean? What does it mean to be free but to almost become like an other for the sake of reaching others, to become like a non-son even though we are uh, to become almost re-enslaved in some ways. You know, Paul talks about, even though he's free from law, becoming like one under the law to reach Jews. So what does that look like in your life? Are you doing that? Have you ever thought about that before? Think very, very practically about that, what that means in your life here in the Twin Cities as we seek to spread the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, we do this, right? To win people and to save people and to remove unnecessary, unnecessary stumbling blocks between people and Jesus. We only want the one stumbling block to be Jesus himself. Not anything else, not food or drink or anything else, but uh, Christ himself, if, if there is indeed one stumbling block, as the scriptures say. Also, I think there is a pattern here of pain for others that is set forth. It's very simple in this story. One person, Jesus, pays for another, Peter. But because of the cross and where all of this is headed, it's a much more deep, profound spiritual thing as well. Pain for others, you could say, is at the center of the Christian reality. And some of you can't do that because you have basically no money. Uh, But think about it in more creative ways. How can you bear one another's burdens, as the scriptures say in Galatians 6.2? Bear one another's burdens as Christians, and for non-Christians as well. As you look out to the world, how can you help bear their burdens? But if you have any any, uh, ability whatsoever, pay for people when you take them out to eat. Uh, Make food for people. Buy that food and pay for them and make dessert. Make them comfortable in your home. Show them hospitality. And in that way, like Jesus is reflecting ahead of time what's going to happen on the cross, you do that as well. Christ image bearer. That's who you are as a Christian. Reflect it. Live that way. Be a generous person. Pay for just generally. It seems so simple. But it's so spirit for a Christian, not for the world. But for a Christian, it's incredibly spiritually profound because at the center of our reality is a God who paid for us, who paid our debts, right? If if you're a Christian, you've been forgiven from your sin. The center of your reality is the heaps and mountains and talents and talents and talents worth. Lifetime's worth of salary has been eradicated. Done at the cross, right? We're free. We're welcomed into the house of God because we're a son. Now, we're no longer a taxpayer before God. We have been change and transform before him to be adopted into his family, a child of God, love forever, no more sin with him. All that's the the nature of our salvation. Reflect that in the way that you live. If you want to be distinctly Christian this week, believe in all of that theologically and then be a payer for someone else. We are like Peter here. We are nothing. Jesus is everything. But because of that, live in a similar manner with the Christ Spirit who is in us in order to demonstrate it. God lowered himself. It's amazing. This happened. This is real. God lowered himself to become like us in order to die for us and to pay our debts. So, in conclusion then, that's basically what this is about. I mean, this is not about, uh, you know, a, a big government, big taxes, political philosophy here that Jesus is buying into. It's about Jesus and his gospel. Understand the nature of Messiahship here. This is about Jesus having to suffer 
And after that, experiencing glory through resurrection. Secondly, in conclusion, hear hear a whisper here of the grace-filled, debt-paying love of your Savior in this passage. He pays for the debt of your sin that you have incurred before holy God. And just see how little you have to do with it. When you see the fish story for the rest of your life, put your finger on that and say, so have I undone nothing to save myself. That's what it's about. It is a shadow of the glorious cross. Right there. And then third, reflect the lowering of God in your life and ministry. Seek to be at peace with others, if at all possible, not to give offense to them, but becoming like them. Even though you're free not to, in order to win them, be generous, bear one another's burdens, pay for them, surprise them with your love and kindness, like the God of the universe surprised us on the glorious cross by making eternal life just appear out of nothing like a coin in a fish's mouth. And God has done that out of love for us. Praise God forever. This is the nature of our salvation. This is the nature of God that we gather in the shadow of and the presence of today and uh, we're, we're hearing from. So let me pray for us to close and we'll respond. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this passage of scripture that talks so much and, and whispers at least, uh, very well, not just whispers, declares clearly in the first two verses, but then whispers in a demonstrative manner about your love, your, your debt pain, love and grace expressed to us in the cross. Thank you for paying for us for showing us such amazing hospitality, for welcoming us back into your presence, for adopting us, as making us free sons in your presence, no longer outsiders, but people who are in your presence again by grace, completely by grace, not by what we do. Thank you so much for that. And praise your name forever that, that, is, that this is truth. It's true. And God, I pray that you just help us respond here through song today, uh, through communion, which again is another whisper and symbol of what happened on the cross, the center of our reality. Uh, God, wherever people are spiritually today, I pray that you would help by your spirit us to just incrementally approach you more and more and more and find maturity in the fact that you do everything and we do nothing. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.